This is They Create Worlds, episode 162, Spinnaker Software. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We made fun of them in the last episode, but we decided to give them a redemption arc. (laughs) Spinnaker Software returns to us once more with not just Jingle Disc, with not just 8-in-1, but an entire library of software for your edutainment and productivity needs. Absolutely, though in all fairness, Jingle Disc was high-tech expressions, not the fine people at Spinnaker Software. However, we did kind of poke a little fun at some of their product as well. That's because we were doing that episode kind of in the context of games, and while Spinnaker did dabble in games, which we will get into, they were really more in that edutainment market, which, by the way, is a term that the founders of Spinnaker themselves absolutely despised. Really? They get labeled as, you are doing edutainment, education and entertainment, and they hated it. Yes, David Cease, the co-founder, he really didn't like it because it was a manufactured term. He felt that you could describe what they were doing in education and entertaining without resorting to something cheap like that. Who's to say whether he's right or wrong, but that is his personal opinion on the matter. However, for our purposes, they were definitely an edutainment company. And actually, their story is interesting in the sense that it is another one of these companies that is a good bellwether for kind of how the computer game industry and the computer software industry as a whole was developing in the time period that they were around. That's what we've been doing a lot recently in our company histories, is not just telling the history of the company, but kind of indicating how that history also showed the trends that were present in the industry at the time they were active. And Spinnaker is no different in that regard as being a very interesting object lesson on the computer industry from the early 80s to the mid-1990s, which was their period of activity. That's also the time frame that we have to keep in mind that you can't really divorce the computer software industry from the computer game industry. Mm -hmm. They are pretty much one and the same. You had manufacturers, software coders, companies, whatever you want to call them, who were making productivity software games and all the things associated with them at the same time. You didn't have that split off that we come to associate with video games these days as a video game industry. Absolutely. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit in our couple of 100,000 episodes, but really in this time period, the real split was between people making software for businesses and people making software for the home. You had the giants of business software like Lotus Development Corporation, like Borland International, like Microsoft, who were primarily trying to get into offices and computers being used in offices. But there wasn't a lot of overlap in this time period between the office computer user and the home computer user. We talked about this before. That's really more of a late 80s, early 90s phenomenon. 
in this time period, you had your businesses doing their business work in the business factory. And at home, you had whatever the heck you could convince people to do in the home. And so that was primarily games, but it was also a little bit of word processing, a little bit of desktop publishing, a little bit of education, a little bit of personal finance. Just kind of these little things along the periphery. And so that's why a lot of the big computer game companies in this time period, companies like Broderbund, Sierra, Electronic Arts, Activision, also dabbled in some of this productivity area or some of this education area with mixed success. I mean, Broderbund had an enormous amount of success. Sierra had a half-decent amount of success. Electronic Arts, it didn't really work out. Activision, it nearly drove them out of business. But you have that blending going on in the home because you didn't have that segmentation by product line so much as you had the segmentation by where the computer was being used. Now, of course, computers are ubiquitous, so you don't have that same kind of differentiation today. Today, it really is specializing in particular product areas. Spinnaker was founded to be an education company using computers for education, but Just like our computer game companies, it was never going to be just that, because in this time period, nobody was just one thing. And as the company grew, it did branch out a little bit into pure games, even, that didn't necessarily have an educational component to them. Were they ever a giant on that part of the industry? No. But it does mean that they are still worthy of an examination in the context of what you and I do on this podcast, looking at the video game industry or the video game industries, as you might more properly call them in this time period. That leaves us with who is Spinnaker Software? Where do they come from? How did they rise? How did they fall? And who do we blame? <laughs> Absolutely. So Spinnaker Software comes straight out of Cambridge, Massachusetts in the Boston area, home of Harvard and MIT. We've talked about the sum before, of course, but back in the day, Boston was almost as big a tech hub as what we now call Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. The Route 128 technology corridor was very, very important because you did have those schools, Harvard and MIT right there, that had a lot of top-notch technical students and a lot of top-notch professors and other talent. A lot of computer innovation came out of that part of the country, particularly a little earlier. We're talking like the 60s and the 70s. The mini computer market really came out of their Digital Equipment Corporation, which we've talked about before. Boston Dynamics. Absolutely. And of course, there were very important contractors. A lot of the internet, what we now call the internet, a lot of that infrastructure was built up in that area at companies like uh, BBN, Bolt, Baranek, and Newman big government connections, big university connections. Silicon Valley won out in the end for a variety of structural reasons that are really beyond the scope of our episode today because we're not really talking about that. But it's just important to note that there was a time when Boston was a real contender, both in the technology industry and even in the venture capital business as well. It starts with two gentlemen that are employed together at a company called the Boston Consulting Group. These are the co-founders of Spinnaker Software, Bill Bowman and David Cease. Now, if you look at Cease, I just want to say this real fast. If you look at his name and you're familiar with the children's books of Theodore Geisel, who wrote under the pen name Dr. Seuss, 
You'll notice that it is spelled the same as Seuss and Dr. Seuss, but he does actually pronounce it Cease. I have interviews with him and with Bowman and other people, not that I've done myself, but that have been done, where his name is pronounced. And he does pronounce it Cease, despite that looking like it should be Seuss to some of us. Both of these people came at it from slightly different backgrounds. Bill Bowman had actually been a programmer back in the day and had actually managed uh, computer centers as well for the U.S. government. So he had some background with this technology before he had joined the Boston Consulting Group. He ended up going there in 1978 because they kind of wined and dined him and he was very impressed. He thought it might be a nice change of pace to go work for this company. Boston Consulting was a leading consulting firm, very prestigious, in the U.S., and it it does just what its name suggests. They were consultants. People in various businesses would come to them and say, I need to improve my performance in this area, in this sector, in the business that I'm in. Can you help me? The people with the expertise at the company would look at their business, get up to speed on it. These were mostly business people, MBAs, you know, Bowman and Cease both, I believe, had MBAs. They would look at this and use their kind of general knowledge of how businesses work and good business practices and apply it to the specific setting that they were in. Bowman thought that sounded kind of cool, but when he got there, it ended up not being that sexy because the kinds of people that go to consulting businesses tend to be established businesses. I mean, if you're a startup getting into a new field, you don't have the extra capital to go hire a very high-priced consultant to help you put your business together. That's not what you do. (laughs) You need every single bit of coin that you have being plowed right back into this business you're trying to establish. The emerging home computer business and computer software business, these kind of businesses were not the types of businesses going to a place like the Boston Consulting Group. What he found is that he was mostly working on industries where doing a good job meant that you were growing 2 or 3% year over year. Established businesses, commodities businesses, nothing sexy and fun and sophisticated. In a Harvard Business School business study that both founders participated in in the 1980s, in 1985, I believe, He even said that the last company that he worked with before he decided he'd had enough was a company that made toilet bowl deodorizers. Important thing to have in a multifamily home. A very important thing to have, but not something that is exactly a runaway industry. Not something that's going to suddenly change the way the world works. I mean, maybe when they were first invented, sure, but not at this point when it's an established field, an established commodity. There's really not much to say at that point. Even if you do do it, it's not like you have much in the way of brand recognition. Oh, I just want a toilet bowl deodorizer. I'm just going to grab whichever one's the cheapest off the shelf. I'm happy. We're good. You realize you just said the words do-do while talking about a toilet deodorizer, right? No. (laughs) Enjoy that moment when you edit the episode, Editing Jeffrey. Editing Jeffrey here saying, I can't believe I said that. Enjoy, kids. After just being there about three years, he joined in 78. So by 1981, Bowman was just kind of over it. He was ready to leave. He was getting interested in this new emerging microcomputer business. Now, he missed out on the beginning 
of this microcomputer revolution because he'd been in tech. He'd been a programmer, but he left that life to get his MBA before joining Boston Consulting right before this industry started taking off. And, you know, at that point, he was so focused on getting that MBA done, he was not paying attention to what was going on in technology. One of his classmates when he was getting his MBA was Dan Filstra, who very famously was the founder of Visicorp personal software, which renamed itself VisiCorp, which put out VisiCalc, that revolutionary first spreadsheet program that we've talked about before. He kind of was, had kept an eye on Dan. They had been section mates in business school, and he had kind of kept an eye and was hearing about all these success that Filster was having and that VisiCorp was ha- having. And he thought, maybe now's the time to try to get back into computers and maybe do something interesting or sexy in that area. He actually ended up joining Bolt Baranek and Newman, who I talked about before, the very major government contractor that was instrumental in creating a lot of the technology behind uh, the ARPANET, which, of course, then essentially to cut through some complexity in what really happened, but essentially transformed into the Internet. While he was there, he was hoping that he might get them involved in some business entrepreneurial stuff. BBN was actually interested in maybe starting to sell stuff for the public kind of on the side. I mean, their government gig, their contracting gig was still going to be their main thing. They weren't pivoting the business. But they were looking at maybe starting a subsidiary and selling some stuff in the public sector as well. And they were particularly interested in marketing a mini computer that they had designed for their own use. They actually brought Bowman on to help them with that. Bowman was kind of hoping that maybe that could even be a springboard into doing some other interesting stuff through BBN, maybe even educational software. This isn't the birth of Spinnaker here. This is just stuff kicking around pre-Spinnaker. He's getting into the mini-computer thing, and he's thinking about education, and he's wanting to push BBN maybe in a more entrepreneurial direction, at least at the subsidiary, not the company as a whole. Though it's difficult because it's, it's just not in the DNA of the company. I mean, they're kind of interested in trying to do some of that, but it's a hard pivot for a company like that that's never really been involved in that kind of thing. While this is all going on, the time frame here we're talking is roughly April of 1981. Bowman receives a visit from one of his old Boston Consulting Group fellows, David Cease, the other co-founder of Spinnaker Software. They had been classmates, so they'd known each other a while. They were classmates at Harvard Business School. They got their MBAs together. And just like Bowman, Cease went off to the Boston Consulting Group after he got that MBA. He was happy there. Unlike Bowman, who just couldn't take it anymore, Seas was really happy there. He had no desire to be any kind of entrepreneur. He thought it was interesting, kind of floating between all of these different businesses and learning about these different businesses and helping them. You know, he kind of had a different bent to him than Bowman did, who was starting to get driven crazy by this. But he did eventually get the leadership bug. After about three years, about the same amount of time it took Bowman to get tired, uh, after about three years, Seas kind of wanted to run something not just advise on something. That was really going to be kind of a hard thing to accomplish. In Cease's own words, the only path to kind of that kind of life would be to get one of the clients that he worked with at Boston Consulting kind of impressed with him and get them to hire him on. But they wouldn't hire him on directly as a manager. You'd have to essentially spend a couple of years apprenticing as something else first before becoming a manager. 
he didn't want to do that. He was ready to run something, and he didn't want to waste any more time. Because of that, he decided that, well, if he's going to be a manager, he's going to have to have his own company. He decided that he was going to go out and be an entrepreneur. He was also drawn to the mini-computer industry, because remember, this is a time when microcomputers are still barely more than hobbyist machines, early 1981. When both of them are thinking about getting into tech and getting into computers, many computers make a whole lot more sense. Cease knew that Bowman was at BBN and doing this many computer stuff, and so he came to see Bowman kind of for his advice on how to break into the many computer industry with some kind of startup. They kind of realized that their goals really aligned here. They also kind of thought that getting into mini-computer software would actually probably be pretty easy. So by the end of this meeting together, it was a lunch meeting, they decided that they would create a company together. At this point, uh, you know, in April 1981, the company they're looking at is some kind of mini-computer software business. But they didn't know exactly what. They came up with a couple of different ideas. They didn't know what they wanted to do. They were kind of feeling out people they knew to see if they had any ideas, kind of see what was hot. Bill actually had a friend in venture capital in San Francisco. They weren't looking for financing. They were just looking for ideas. And of course, venture people are around ideas all the time. But when his friend learned that they were looking at starting a company, he said, oh, well, you know, if you're starting a company, you've got to meet this guy I know at TA Associates back in Boston. TA Associates was a venture capital firm located in the Boston area. Bowman wasn't interested, but I mean, you know, his friend was kind of passing the name off on him, and so he took the name, didn't really plan to do anything with it. And in Bill's words, a few months later, he was cleaning out his briefcase, and he saw that little note in it with the VC's name on it. He was about ready to throw it out. He wasn't planning to call it because they didn't need funding at this point. I mean, maybe someday, but not now. But he got to thinking, you know, if my friend asks, you know, hey, did you ever talk to my guy? He wouldn't have a good answer for him. So he kind of grudgingly called and made an appointment. The appointment was set for December 1st, 1981. He goes to the TA Associates offices, and the secretary there tells him when he arrives that the guy's not available. There was a last-minute deal-closing problem, and he wouldn't be able to make their lunch meeting. But there was another person named Jackie Morby who would sit down with him for lunch instead. Now, Bowman had no idea who Jackie Morby was, But Jackie Morby, Jackie in this case short for Jacqueline, was one of the few women, first of all, in venture capital, and also one of the few people, man or woman, that was really becoming engaged in what was going on in the microcomputer industries. She saw microcomputers as the future. She had helped TA Associates invest in digital research, which were the creators of CPM, which was kind of the universal golden operating system standard before Microsoft palled around with IBM and created MS-DOS. CPM was like the standard across just about any machine running Intel processors and some other processors before Microsoft got involved in that. So they were highly successful for a couple of years, though they started to fade pretty quickly once Microsoft got their hold on the market. Also, she had invested in online systems, Sierra Online, and she was really, really gung-ho on this stuff. So they ended up having the meeting together instead, and she was very intrigued in the backgrounds of Bill and David. She was one of these venture capitalists 
she wasn't unique in this, but she was one of these venture capitalists that didn't care so much about the business plan as she did about the people. She just figured there's a certain type of person that is good at doing one of these startups. And even if they don't have all of their finances, all their ducks in a row, their P&L sheets planned out, their business plan with every I dotted and T crossed, if they're interesting people, they're probably going to do okay. And she was very intrigued in their background. And she was looking for more opportunities in the microcomputer business. So over the course of this meeting with Bill, she convinced him that they should really go into something microcomputer and that they should go ahead and take three weeks funded by TA to just explore, study the microcomputer industry, see what that industry looked like, and see where there might be a place for them to contribute. That's a pretty generous offer. Mm -hmm. Pretty much she's saying, hey, I'm going to give you the better part of a month, Mm -hmm. pay your expenses, your needs, whatever to just see if something's viable. I'm not expecting anything in return. I'm essentially hiring you to have the freedom in order to investigate further. Exactly. This was kind of the perfect time for this, because this is a time when the industry was just starting to change. And we've talked about this before in regards especially to electronic arts and Activision within the context of computer games. You know, those first few years of the market, 77, 78, 79, 80. The companies that were in the business tended to be companies where there was a guy that was really interested in the technology, started fiddling with the technology themselves. They're a hobbyist, an enthusiast. Maybe their day job is also in computers. I mean, they may be highly technical people, but nobody's day job is microcomputers yet. As a hobbyist, they're working with microcomputers on the side. They create a couple of programs that are kind of cool, and maybe they take them to the local computer store, or maybe they take them to a friend, or in the case of Broderbund, a relative who has some business background. Everyone's like, hey, this is pretty neat. Maybe we should form a company around this. So, you know, these early companies, these Broderbunds, these online systems, these serious softwares, all of these companies that we've talked about before, they are not founded by business professionals. There may be some business experience there, but they're not MBAs. They're not people that have spent years and years studying the way business works. They're kind of amateur businesses. Some of these people grow into the roles of businessmen and and have very successful companies. But right here in 8182, this is where the market is starting to turn, and it's matured enough that MBAs are starting to take an interest, that experienced business people are starting to take an interest. I do often consider electronic arts to be one of the bellwethers of this, because Trip Hawkins, he wasn't just an empty, soulless suit. He really enjoyed the technology, and he really enjoyed that industry, and he really enjoyed games. I mean, he was a game guy, but he wasn't a tech guy. He wasn't a programmer. He was a marketer. He was a marketer that went to Harvard for undergrad and Stanford for business school. He was a capital B businessman. These are the kind of people that are starting to come in now that the market has matured a little bit and are trying to bring a little more discipline and a little more order to kind of the chaotic, self-made entrepreneur phase of the computer software industry. So at the same time, Trip Hawkins is getting ready to do this in computer games. Here come two more MBAs, Bill Bowman and David Cease, who are like, we want to do this in the microcomputer industry too. And at first, they were thinking about business software. They thought that that was kind of a hole. They, they weren't thinking games at all because games was being done, right? I mean, there were already a lot of games on the market. 
They were thinking there was a hole for business software, that that might be a place they could go. But they realized that the kind of business they were wanting to put together was a more mass market business. They wanted to be selling to individuals, not to corporations. There really wasn't a market for that. Because as I said, there was a clear division at this time between business computers and home computers. It's very hard for people today to really understand that. Mm -hmm. Back in this time period, when you had a computer at home, really, it was more of a novelty. It was more of a, oh, look at the cool thing that I have that can do this pretty thing here. It can show some pictures. Little Johnny plays his video games on it. Oh, look, the wife made a banner. Mm -hmm. That's it. We didn't really think of the home computer as a viable, truly revolutionary system outside of, say, people who were really geeks gung-ho about it. To the mass market, to the everyday user, computers are, and to an extent today, a mystery black box that does the magic. Mm -hmm. What they were trying to do is come up with What can I make on the computer that would have an appeal to those kind of people? Those people who go, this is a magic box that does mysterious things, costs a lot of money to do it. (laughs) There are people out there who are eccentrics. They go, I want to spend a lot of money, maybe show off. Some other people say, oh, yeah, that's cool. They want to get on a bandwagon, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you have a level of adoption there. What kind of software is really going to be applicable to them? Mm-hmm. We've mentioned before all of these other software, like you can do your recipes on there. You can do your <laughs> business thingy, whatever that is. But we're not really defining that. Little Johnny can get an education. We're not really defining that, but we're just saying in broad terms. It's almost like marketing speech in a way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Really here, what Spinnaker has the opportunity to do is come up with something that is really the go-to app that can really push the home computer. What can you do? What kind of interface? What kind of thing can you really do to make it so that computers really have a value outside of a novelty? Absolutely. And what can they do that someone else is not already doing? because they want to get into this in an area where they can have an impact. What they found when they were exploring is that it wasn't really business software that they could do this, but educational software. The market was truly in its infancy. There was not a lot going on there. But it was something that they figured would have high demand. We've talked about this before. A lot of the people that are getting into these home computers, the people that have a little bit of extra money to throw around on this kind of thing, are your young professionals, your emerging yuppie class, so to speak. A lot of these young professionals are also at this time starting families. So there are a lot of computer users that have young children. It's kind of a great place to go because nobody's really gone there yet, and there's definitely a market for it. So when they come back to Jackie, that's what they say. They say, what we want to do is do an educational company. I'm not sure that's exactly what Jackie Morby was expecting them to come back with because she was really big on the growing game business. But still, this sounded like something that was going to be interesting because it was something where nobody was really doing anything yet. TA Associates agreed to fund them to the tune of $800,000. 
on April 8th, 1982, Bill resigned from BBN, and they officially founded Spinnaker Software. David stayed on at Boston Consulting Group. He was still there for another couple of months because he had some affairs to put in order, some consulting gigs that he was wrapping up. But he joined in June full-time, and uh, they had a company starting in April. I don't know where the name comes from, even though I have some interviews with both of these people. Nobody seems to have asked them that. Spinnaker is a word. Spinnaker is a particular type of sale. Sale is in sailing, not sale is in selling things. I guess the company's probably named after the sale. I don't know what the connection there is. I don't know why they decided that was a good name. Anyway, they had Spinnaker Software, which was basically just the two of them and David's wife, Priscilla, who was managing shipping and <laughs> operations, working out of an office uh, to start with that was so small that they had to play musical chairs when somebody needed to go get up and answer a phone on another desk because everyone was so crammed together. And that's how this company began. They initially were planning to have their first software available in early 1983. But in the course of their research, uh, everyone was telling them, you don't dare miss Christmas. So they made the decision that their first product would be in the market for December of 1982. And uh, remember, the company was founded at the beginning of April. So already we're at the E.T. situation of rush it out the door. (laughs) Sort of. But the thing is, they were never planning to make their own stuff. Very similar to the electronic arts approach, really, in games. They understood that they were the business people. They were the people that knew something about moving product through a product chain. They really didn't know much, (laughs) quite honestly, because they'd never been involved in that before. They were consultants to people in retail, but they were not in retail themselves. But still, they figured with their MBAs and their consulting background that they at least knew a little bit more about that kind of thing than the average programmer does. But they weren't planning to hire their own people and make their own stuff in-house. They knew that they were going to go outside for a product. So that's what they did with the uh, first three products that they got together. Two of those products were actually conceptualized by David Cease, particularly, and then contracted out to a small California company called Designware. Cease was actually a real gamer. I mean, he had bought one of these microcomputers early on. He was very interested in them, and he remains a gamer to this day. And when I say he is a gamer, he was a gamer with a capital G. For a couple of years in the mid-2000s, and remember, he's middle-aged or older at this point by the time we're talking about the mid-2000s. He's not a young guy. He was the main tank and head of personnel for a WoW raiding guild with 200 members. That is some dedication. (laughs) Uh, Now, obviously, he was retired at that point. He could put that time in. It's not like he was doing that level of gaming when he had a day job, but... This is a guy that loved games for game's sakes. You know, he had some interesting ideas of what to do. And one thing that they were very clear on from the beginning is they wanted to harness the computer. They didn't want to just do what you do in the print world with workbooks and flashcards and arithmetic problems and all of this kind of drill stuff. They didn't want to do drill software. They wanted to harness the unique capabilities of the computer to educate while entertaining a little bit at the same time. Now, we're not talking about games here. We're still not quite talking about games yet, though that would come in very quickly. But their own personal ideas were about providing some fun activities where, oh, by the way, guess what? You're learning something at the same time. 
Cease came up with the ideas for two of their first products, though he didn't have anything to do with implementing them. That was designware. We talked about uh, these products in our 100,000. I mean, they had a lot of very successful uh, software. One of these was FaceMaker, which we talked about just recently in that episode. FaceMaker was basically a Mr. Potato Head on the computer, where you could mix and match various eyes and noses and mouths and facial hair and ears and whatever else. And with CGA graphics, it can lead to some rather frightening depictions. (laughs) Exactly. They're limited in the graphics. But the idea was to do a Mr. Potato Head kind of thing. But you see, it was about learning how the computer keyboard was laid out and how the computer keyboard worked. Because you would have to do various commands to create these faces. So the kid is having fun just kind of making these funny faces, kind of doing Mr. Potato Head on the computer, but at the same time, they're learning how the computer operates. They're learning how to type. They're learning how to understand a process in order to achieve a goal. Exactly. They're more about process and problem solving than they are about what's one plus one. How do you spell duck? If one of the other games is true, the way to spell duck is to press D a whole bunch of times. Yes, which we'll be getting to in a second, because that's a Spinnaker game, too. Facemaker was one of their first ones. And then another one called StoryWriter. I believe we talked about that as well. And what StoryWriter was, I can't remember if it was on the 100,000, but I think it was. What StoryWriter did is it allowed you to use a collection of nouns and verbs to construct very basic sentences, which you could string together into paragraphs to create stories. But then there'd be animations accompanying your little story that you've typed out. If you type in, the girl jumps over the flower, then once you're done typing your story and you run your story, then there'll be a girl and she'll walk over to a flower and then she'll jump over the flower and walk on and do whatever the next thing in line is. So again, it's entertaining the child. And this is for small children, remember. I mean, we're not talking about entertaining necessarily even nine-year-olds. Younger kids are very entertained by this kind of thing. I remember I, these are not Spinnaker products, but I loved the Sticky Bear educational games when I was like three years old because, yeah, there wasn't much to them, but just seeing stuff animate on a screen and seeing stuff light up and turn on and off and, and whatever else, that's entertaining for a kid that age. I have nephews. I see them with an iPad. And very, very simple games. They will be lost and happy in it for hours. Right, because it's sensation as much as anything. When all sensations are kind of still relatively new to you, all sensations are fascinating. So very simple interactions and very simple sensations are, are fascinating to a young kid. The allure is that you get to see this animation playing out on your computer screen. But the education is that in order to get that animation, you have to type simple sentences with proper nouns and verbs. Not just simple sentences. You're learning a little bit of programming as well because you're trying to Mm -hmm. go, I want A, B, C, D to happen. The girl ran. The girl ran to the flower. The girl ran to the flower and jumped over it. Exactly. These stories could be uh, about 40 words long. You could have up to four animated objects on the screen at the same time in your your simple animation. So, you know, these these are kind of cute little things, and there wasn't much like this. The learning company already existed, but it was only just getting started and preparing to release its first big products, too. I mean, this was really a new area. So those were two of the products. And then the other product that they had the great fortune to acquire, and which was really their first great hit, 
much bigger hit than either of these products were, was a product called Snooper Troops by a local teacher named Tom Snyder. Tom Snyder is one of the more fascinating individuals in the early history of computer software and computer games. Later on, he would actually transition fully into games with his company, Tom Snyder Productions. But in the early days, it was mostly focused on educational product because he was actually a teacher. He grew interested in technology at a fairly young age, kind of as a young teen, about 13, 14 years old. He was something as a loner of a loner as a kid. And loners, of course, are attracted to activities that one can do on their own. Technology can be good for that, also books and reading. In the library, he discovered some Bell Labs technical journals. One of these journals provided kind of instructions on how you could basically create a simple computer using mechanical relays. He got kind of interested in this, and he actually, at the age of 14, in Wellesley, Massachusetts, so he's a Boston-area kid as well, he actually created his own uh, digital computer. His mom kind of encouraged him to send some of the stuff he did to IBM, just write the president of IBM and be like, here's something I did. So he did that. That takes a lot of guts to do, especially for IBM. Yeah, exactly. So he did that. And after he did it, a few days later, he discovered that uh, some trucks had delivered about $1,000 worth of hardware components to their house from IBM with a note basically saying, hey, cool kid. If you ever invent anything else, keep us in mind. You know, they were kind of nurturing this this kid that took the initiative to do that. Shortly after that, he kind of cooled on this, though. Uh, once he was fully into puberty, he, was, he got into girls. He got really big into rock music. He was in a band for a couple of years. They even uh, recorded a little bit in the late 1960s. I mean, they, they never had any success or anything, but they even did cut a record or two. He got really into music, and then uh, by the time he was going to college at Swarthmore, he actually majored in French, far away from his uh, technology roots as a young teen. Then he got his master's in education at Lesley College, which was a small school also in Cambridge, home of Harvard and MIT. Then he got a job at a Cambridge alternative school called Shady Hill as a science and music teacher. Now, at this point, his technology background kind of comes back in because he's interested in a way of engaging kids and engaging kids to interact with other kids. Ironically, he's not really interested in computer software at all because he's not really interested in having a kid stare at a computer screen and interact solo with a computer screen. He's really interested in ways of getting kids more actively engaged in the classroom and getting kids more actively engaged with each other. He actually creates this little robot thing, this little contraption, which he called Personk, which was kind of a simplified computer model made out of wood, wire, and string. Just this kind of fun little teaching tool. It ended up being so popular with the kids at the school that he even ended up with an offer from Parker Brothers, which is also based in Massachusetts there nearby, as we talked about in our Parker Brothers episodes, to turn this little robot into a toy, into an actual product. This is in 1978, to give it a time frame. He showed up at the wrong time. He thought the meeting was on a particular Tuesday in January, and it turns out that the meeting was actually on the previous Monday. He missed the meeting, and because he missed the meeting, you know, they were no longer going to entertain his idea. It was, it was over. 
he kind of got to thinking to himself, and the way he rationalized it or contextualized it in his mind is he was like, you know, I think I did that on purpose. I, I think I was not really ready to do this. I didn't really want to be entrepreneurial or in the toy business. That's not really where my energy is. And he started thinking, where is my energy really? And he decided, well, it's expanding what I'm doing in the classroom. He decided that the next logical step up from his persong, his little simple electrical electronic contraption, was to actually get a computer and work maybe with computer software. So he goes out, he buys himself a TRS-80 within a week of that missed meeting, and he starts transforming his persong thing that he had created in hardware into a software program. From there, he starts creating a series of educational simulation programs for Shady Hill on a wide range of topics, archaeology, energy, geography, geology, all focused on having kids work together to solve problems. Because like I said, he's very, very anti-stare at a computer screen. Mm -hmm. He wants kids engaged with each other. So he's got these simple programs that are based on kids coming together to solve problems. These do so well and are so popular that he decides to go to McGraw-Hill, the textbook company. McGraw-Hill agrees to market them as educational products. These are not home products. These are things that they're going to be marketing to schools. So we're talking about software that they're going to sell for like $300, not $10 off the rack or something like that. We're going to really increase that price. Uh-huh, because it's for the education market. It's not really for personal use. And so they create what they call the search series around these, McGraw-Hill does, and they sell them to schools. Kind of the hallmark of these games, to make them collaborative, is that there would always be more information on the screen going by so quickly than just one person could process. There'd be several different things going on at once, and none of them would stay on the screen long enough for a single person. So by the time a single person has processed what's going on in this part of the screen, what was going on in the other part of the screen is gone or is changed in a way that is already too late. So the idea is you have to have multiple kids working on this program at the same time and collaborating and taking notes and sharing information in order to do what needs to be done. At this point, he decides to get himself an IBM PC, which had just come out, just been released. At the request of another teacher at the school, he starts to create a more elaborate program. This is Snooper Troops. These are mystery games where you have to take notes, use deductive reasoning, and solve crimes. Figure out what's going on in town, interview witnesses, gather clues reason, figure things out, take notes, share information, and solve cases. Sounds very similar to Carmen San Diego in a way. In a way, in a way, absolutely. They're meant to be still educational. They're teaching skills like note-taking and deductive reasoning, but they're definitely leaning more into the entertainment side of things. It just so happens that Jackie Morby, our erstwhile venture capitalist from earlier, her son is actually a student at Shady Hill. and. Tom Snyder was actually her son's teacher. Her son had some difficulty with writing. I think he might have been dyslexic. Bill Bowman talks a little bit about this in one of his interviews, and he kind of hinted that the kid was dyslexic, but I'm not entirely sure. But he had some kind of learning situation where he wasn't a very good writer. When he got in front of a computer and a keyboard, 
because that actually uses a different part of the brain than handwriting does. Case in point, I can type better than I can speak sometimes. Sure, exactly. When Snyder put the kid in front of a computer, it turned out that he was actually a very good writer because he was using a different part of his brain to do this than when he was just handwriting. And so Morby was very impressed with Snyder. Of course, Spinnaker's going into education, so Morby helps get Snyder connected with the Spinnaker guys. And Snooper Troops is their other big launch title in 1982. It's a massive hit. It just strikes a chord in that market. All the games are successful, but Snooper Troops is really the one that's most successful. Again, one of the things that they did in launching this software is they leaned into sophistication. You know, at this time, there was still a lot of Ziploc baggy software, especially in education. Some of the game companies were starting to move more towards sturdier boxes, but there was still a lot of the Ziploc baggy stuff going on. So one of the things they made sure to do is have very unique and professional looking and durable looking packaging. They actually put their product inside these plastic clamshell cases, kind of like how your old uh, Disney video cassettes used to come in back in the day. These molded plastic clamshells. They had a professional-looking product that stood out in that way. They marketed it very savvy because they were MBA types. And they had good, solid products that educated while also being fun. And so as a result of all of this, they had some very nice hits in 1982 with those products. Another thing that they did very early on the next year is with the Commodore 64 coming online and the Commodore 64 looking like it was going to be the next big thing, they got in close with Commodore and went to Commodore headquarters and kind of learned how the machine worked and learned how doing cartridges on the machine worked, because this was going to mean really getting into the cartridge market on the Commodore 64. You definitely don't want to have a disc on that one. Exactly. They got on the Commodore 64 very early. The Commodore 64, of course, blew up. They were able to ride that wave of the Commodore 64 because they had some of the premier educational software on it right when it was coming out. And so that was also a big deal. They started to expand their stable of developers, of course, as well. Another person that they brought on very early in this time period in their kind of 1983 run-up of things was another educator. You know, a lot of these people doing this are educators uh, out in California by the name of Dale Disharoon. Dale, kind of the other important early creator that they had, had had nothing to do with computers growing up, unlike Tom Snyder. He went to school as a film student. After he graduated, he went into education and didn't have any idea about computers at all. In 1979, when he'd been teaching for about three years, the school he was teaching at in uh, California decided that they were going to get into computers, get some computers into the school for educational purposes, and uh, enlisted Dale to help in that process. As part of that, he took a programming workshop at Radio Shack on the TRS-80 and was hooked kind of in the same way that the Spinnaker people were hooked on the way that visual information could be conveyed on a computer. You know, again, he's not interested in the computer as a way to just do flashcards, except now the flashcards are on the computer instead of being held in your hand. He was interested in the visual capabilities of a computer and thought that there was a real place for educational software that took advantage of that. This is something that, you know, just broadly about Spinnaker is actually very interesting. 
you can be a little cynical about Spinnaker, as we were, admittedly, in our 100,000 episode. It's education, which is often, you know, the graveyard of bad design. It's MBAs. It's not people that necessarily are doing it for the love of the art, but because they think it's an area that they can make some money in. Now, that's not true of developers like Disharoon and, and Snyder, but I'm just talking about, you know, Spinnaker itself as a company. But Bowman and Seuss weren't just MBAs. They both had a connection with computers, and they both loved computers to one degree or another. And they really did want to educate on the computer in a way that was unique to the medium. I think that's really why they were successful, more than the fact that they did interesting packaging, more than the fact that they advertised heavily, more than the fact that they really pushed into mass market retailers like Target and Kmart. I mean, they did all of those business things. They're MBAs. They're good at doing the business stuff. But they also did want to take unique advantage of the capabilities of the computer and education. And so they made products that even if they were a little simple because they were designed for children on computers that were still very primitive, were doing things that you just didn't see every day and weren't just taking something that was already done in the classroom and converting it into a computer. That's something that's very common with a lot of software and any kind of technology. People don't really understand how to use it, so they take what we understand and just translate that verbatim into the new technological medium. Mm -hmm. Just about every program of this era followed that motif. Flashcards that are digital. We have a roller decks. Mm -hmm. We're just using that same kind of thing. We're not really thinking, you know, now that I have a computer, maybe I need to reassess How do I interface with this information? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can put a lot of this information in here, this educational stuff, these recipes, these contacts, but how I pull that information out is as crucial, if not more crucial, than having it on a computer. Right, and especially for kids, because sometimes with adults, you have to couch what you're doing in a new area in familiar trappings, because adults don't always learn so good anymore. You know? How does the computer go again? Which button is it? Why does the printer make the flashy lights? (laughs) Right. So sometimes with adults, you have to do that. But kids are sponges. In every generation, it's true. But, you know, today the trope is that if grandma has no idea how to make the iPad go, just give it to the two-year-old. And even if the two-year-old has never seen an iPad before, the two-year-old's going to have the iPad figured out in like 10 minutes. It's got a fairly simple interface, and kids are just able to experiment and learn and absorb. So it really makes sense, especially for educational software, to go with the new, to go with the unique, because kids are going to absorb it, and that's just going to put kids in a better position being uh, native with this stuff, tech native, than if you do the kind of more handholdy, couch and familiar ideas and trappings that you might do with an adult. I think it's important to highlight that aspect of Spinnaker and to highlight that aspect of Tom Snyder and to highlight that aspect of uh, Dale Disharoon, who we're talking about now. Disharoon decided, just like Snyder, to make a few simple educational programs. And just like Snyder, he decided to put them out there in the world. And in his case, he went with the Atari Program Exchange, which I think we've talked about in passing before, APX which was basically Atari's independent uh, development apparatus for their computers. People could send in programs, and the winning programs had the potential to win a prize. They'd be judged, and the winners could win a prize. And then all of these programs would be published in the quarterly Atari program exchange, which was a software catalog. 
it was essentially indie game development for the uh, Atari 8-bit computers, a, a very novel idea at the time. He submitted a couple of programs to APX, or Apex, and he won a couple of prizes out of that. So he was like, well, geez, if I can win some prizes in this kind of amateur uh, indie kind of development, I must have something going here. I should make some stuff for companies. So he ends up connecting with the learning company. The learning company actually uh, sees his programs in the APX and publishes them, you know, for real, not just this kind of indie publishing thing. Then he starts making deals with other companies, including Spinnaker. For Spinnaker, one of the early products he makes is the one that you alluded to a few minutes ago that I said we'd be getting back to, which was Alphabet Zoo. We made a little fun of Alphabet Zoo before, but that's mostly because I was deliberately going into these programs I didn't know very well and just looking at a video of them without any context whatsoever, just trying to see what was going on. And that was meant to be a little bit silly. It's actually interesting. It's a spelling program, but it's not a spelling program where it's just like spell duck, D-U-C-K. Instead, it's a Pac-Man-like game with a maze, and there'll be an image in the middle of the screen, like, say, a duck. Then there'll be letters scattered throughout the maze, similar to the pills in Pac-Man, the pellets in Pac-Man. There are two ways it can go, and kind of the one we were making fun of last time was actually kind of the easy mode. It has two modes, an easy mode where you just have to collect the first letter over and over again. So if there's a duck, you just have to collect every D in the maze without collecting other things. Then there's the higher level of difficulty where you actually have to spell out what's in the middle of the screen. So you would have to collect D-U-C-K in the proper order and actually spell out the word. So that makes a little more sense now. You know, what we were looking at before, he was just collecting the same letter over and over again. And it's kind of like, what's the point of that? Well, that's the beginner mode. That's what the point of that was. (laughs) So here we are. You're having to associate an image with a word, first of all. And then you have to know how to spell that word. So that's actually in young children, because remember, this is for young children. That is actually promoting a lot of thought processes all at once and doing so in a way that takes advantage of the distinct characteristics of the computer. That's actually a very interesting way to go about it in all seriousness. Not to mention it helps you get used to how computer graphics are and what these kind of symbols can convey. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about high-end graphics here. You look at that duck, it's a somewhat passable duck. <laughs> you look at that desk, I'm not even sure that was a desk. <laughs> Absolutely. So they do Alphabet Zoo. That's released in 1983, and that's another very successful product. He also created something for them called the Adventure Creator which allowed you to create very, very primitive little adventure games, map out rooms and obstacles and all of that. I mean, you know, again, it's very primitive stuff, much more primitive than, say, Electronic Arts' adventure construction set. But again, that was much more on the game side, though it still had an educational component because you're having to build the stuff yourself. So you're having to learn how to fit stuff together in a logical way. They've got some good products. They've got a slate of developers. Things are going very well for them. Their profits rise very, very quickly. Venture capital people are happy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because in their first year, their first fiscal year ending January 31st, 1983. So remember, the company started in April. So this is actually less than a full year. It's their first holiday season. They sell about $750,000 worth of software. Their fiscal year ending January 31st, 1984, their second year of business, that jumped to $11.3 million in sales. That's really good. The main reason for that is getting on that Commodore 64, because by getting in with Commodore really early, 
they were on the Commodore 64 with product before a lot of companies were at a time when mass merchandisers, which was where they were really getting their stuff into, were really desperate and hungry for product. So they just sold a boatload of Commodore 64 cartridges in Christmas 1983, which is the year that the Commodore 64 really took off. It was released before that, but that's when it really started taking off. So by being on the Commodore 64 early, they were able to just explode. They set their sights even higher. They started really targeting the mass market, because at this point, they figured the Commodore 64 was really starting to hit the mass market. Remember, success in the computer industry, even in the early 1980s, was measured in hundreds of thousands of units sold. Radio Shack sold many hundreds of thousands of units, but they didn't sell millions of units. The Apple II, which history often forgets, was a slow starter, didn't hit a million units until 1983, several years after VisiCalc started propelling it into the stratosphere. The VIC-20, Commodore's computer, was the first computer to hit a million units in sales. Then suddenly the Commodore 64 is selling 2 million, 3 million, 4 million. This was new in computers. And it didn't last. One of these days, we're going to do our epic look at the uh, home computer price wars and the home computer market crash. We haven't done that yet. We will. It didn't last. But in that 1983-1984 period, it really looked like computers were about to become real mass market items. Spinnaker saw this, and they moved aggressively. They moved even more aggressively into mass market retailers. They started advertising broadly outside of computer publications. They started advertising in places like Good Housekeeping, Better Homes and Gardens, and Newsweek. Mainstream publications read by millions of people, not just computer magazines. You know, they're not doing anything fancy like television advertising. You don't do that in computer software at this time. But they're not just advertising in the computer magazines. They're advertising in true mainstream publications. They decide that they're going to expand. I mean, they're not leaving educational software, but they're going to start getting involved in other aspects because they want to maintain this growth. They've had massive growth, but of course, part of the stress that comes with massive growth is you have to figure out how to maintain that massive growth. They grew much faster than they expected. They projected just over three million in sales in 1983 in the fiscal year ending in 1984, you know, covering the 1983 calendar year. They were expecting to have just over three million in sales. When they made their business plan, they had 11 million in sales. But now they've got to sustain it. So they did a couple of things. They did that big advertising blitz. They got even more ingrained in the mass market retail channels. They expanded into Europe and started offering educational product in European markets. They diversified the lineup. They got into some productivity software. They did decide, yes, to get into games as well. So here's where we intersect with our more mainstream field. They decided to do sub-brands within the company. It was kind of the General Motors approach, and that's how they described it themselves at the time. Unlike some of the automakers, General Motors doesn't put the GM logo on their individual cars. They do different lines. They have their Cadillac, which is the Cadillac of cars. You know how people say something's the Cadillac of this, Cadillac of that. You know, that's kind of their luxury. They have their GMC, which is their one almost putting the General Motors logo on something. GMC were their trucks. They had Dodge and 
Plymouth. They're good, solid workhorses for your average Joe on the road. They have their Pontiacs, their Sporty numbers. You know, they have all of these different brands, and they don't so much advertise General Motors as they advertise the lifestyle that each of their individual brands convey. That's what Spinnaker, that's what Bowman and Cease decided to do at about this time. They kept the Spinnaker name for their kind of high-end educational product. They looked to the market to see where their biggest threats might come from now that the educational market had taken off in this way. And they decided that the company that would be most likely to be able to challenge them, that was an existing company, not a computer game company, but just an existing company, period, was Fisher-Price, which had a corner on kind of the early childhood market. Rather than waiting for Fisher-Price to come out with their own line of educational computer software, they went to Fisher-Price and they said, hey, can we work with you to put out some of our early childhood stuff under the Fisher-Price name? Fisher-Price was thrilled to do this because Fisher-Price had actually been burned in video games, or rather their parent company, Quaker Oats, had been, because Quaker Oats, who owned them, had bought into a company called U.S. Games and had entered the Atari market and had very disastrous results, just caught up in the whole crash. So Fisher-Price was a little leery about getting into this stuff themselves, so when Spinnaker came, they were like, great, let's do that. So they had their Fisher-Price line for early education. They did a license with Better Living to do uh, home productivity software, stuff like personal finance stuff, health stuff, all of that. Better Living, another magazine brand, you know, well-known. They partnered with PBS to do a series of science educational software under the Nova name. Nova was a very big PBS uh, science documentary series at the time. And they decided to create not one, but two lines of adventure games under the Trillium label for kind of science fiction and fantasy stuff for an older audience, not necessarily kids, which was later renamed Tellarium. And then the Wyndham Classics line, which was centered more on children's literature. What they wanted to do with this is they wanted to revolutionize this area too. And I wouldn't say that they did, but they really had goals to do something different with adventure games. And we talked about this a little bit when we kind of talked about the bookware movement in one of our episodes. But this period right in here where they're doing this, 1984, is right when interactive fiction, the Infocom style of interactive fiction, is really peaking. There are people within the publishing business, even in the book publishing business, that see interactive fiction as a potential new way to experience stories, to experience the written word. A lot of companies get caught up in this. And of course, it doesn't last because this is, as we talked about before, this is right when King's Quest is released. And King's Quest begins the definitive move away from interactive fiction and the text adventure to fully animated graphical adventures. Because the paradigm, it turns out, is not books. It's cartoons. It's movies. It's visual. Because the computer is, at the end of the day, a visual medium, not a text medium, even though obviously you can do whatever you want with text. Having that big fancy monitor there just invites you to use it for more than just displaying 40 or 80 columns of black and white characters. Yes, kid, we said 40 to 80 columns. (laughs) Yep. It doesn't last, but in this brief period, it looks like this may be a thing. And it's right at this time that they're actually approached by another interesting figure by the name of Byron Price. Byron Price is a really kind of crazy guy. Not insane crazy, but just really interesting and weird kind of guy. Eccentric. Yeah, he was apparently endlessly likable and endlessly enthusiastic. And because of this, he made friends in all sorts of places 
high-profile friends, celebrity friends. He really was pushing the book medium in interesting new directions. He was very interested in the visual, which should come as no surprise with all of this that we've been talking about. He was very interested in things like comic books and this kind of thing. One of the first things he did was when he was 17 years old, so this was about 1970, he wrote an anti-drug comic book called The Block that was aimed at grade school children in the inner city that didn't necessarily have a very expansive vocabulary. He traveled the country promoting it and even won an endorsement from the Children's Television Workshop, the creators of Sesame Street, just because of his enthusiasm (laughs) for this whole thing. He kind of had a reality distortion field, almost like Steve Jobs. He wasn't into the same kind of thing Steve Jobs was, but he kind of had a way of, of sounding like a visionary and convincing people of his vision. In 1974, he founded his own company, Byron Price Visual Publications, while he was studying film at Stanford University. He published a line of paperbacks that were essentially trying to revive pulp adventure serials of the 1930s. The same thing that George Lucas would do and Steven Spielberg would do with Raiders of the Lost Ark just a few years later and have success with. Price didn't have that kind of success, but he was trying to do that same thing even before Lucas and Spielberg were. He published a series of graphic novels, some of the very first graphic novels ever created before that term was really even established. They weren't superhero comic books. He was doing it with other more kind of true-to-life topics, adult comic books, not adult in the sense of X-rated, but aimed at adults and on topics that weren't superheroes. You know, another thing that presaged the way another area would go, he created an illustrated fantasy novel called Dragon World. He collaborated with Harlan Ellison on a book of 3D pictures. Harlan Ellison's a very notable science fiction author. He got in with a lot of science fiction authors in this period. He got to know Harlan Ellison, Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, some of the true titans of science fiction. He also got to know members of the Beach Boys. I mean, he just had this ability to talk himself into all of these circles. As part of experimenting with what he could do with books, he created a series called Be an Interplanetary Spy, which was a takeoff on the Choose Your Own Adventure thing. Now, Choose Your Own Adventures were very new at this point, too. They were kind of revolutionary in this period, and they existed before this. But choose your own adventure books. You could guide the narrative, but the way it worked is, you know, you'd read a page and then it says, you know, if you want to go left down the road, turn to page 25. If you want to go right down the road, turn to page 47, and then you'd read the next thing. Be an Interplanetary Spy had the same kind of forge-your-own-path thing going on, but instead of just saying, if you want to do this, go here, there would actually be puzzles little visual puzzles and whatnot within the book itself that you had to decipher to figure out what you were going to do next. It was almost like a piece of interactive fiction. It's almost like an Infocom game in book form. If you want to go through the door, you have to figure out how to unlock the door. Or something like that, exactly. He also knew about the computer business. He was at Stanford. Stanford had a lot of computer stuff going on. He actually went to Xerox Park in the mid-70s to visit. He didn't work there, where they were doing the groundbreaking work and things like GUI interfaces. He saw potential in the computer as being a tool in his quest to reshape narrative fiction as well. By 1983, when this industry is starting to take off, as we discussed, he decided that it would make sense to get into the computer field and start creating parser-based adventure games that were less about exploring and puzzle solving and more about a narrative truly making interactive fiction. 
he kind of pitched this to the Spinnaker people, and the Spinnaker people were already looking at expanding into games, already saw potentials in popular genres like adventure games, and decided to collaborate on this. So they created the Talarium line together. The point of the Talarium line was to adapt works by great science fiction authors into text adventures. Price actually knew some of these people so he could get the rights. So the first one they did was Rendezvous at Rama, which is one of Arthur C. Clarke's very famous short stories about a mysterious spaceship that enters the solar system and is picked up by probes and then an exploration team is sent out to study it. Rendezvous at Rama at this point had actually already inspired one of Infocom's games, Starcross, which had a very similar premise by Dave Lebling. They also did Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury's seminal book. In both cases, it's because Price knew the authors. Now, they played up that the authors collaborated, but in truth, Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury, while they did pose for some publicity pictures and allow their name to be used in marketing and everything, they really didn't contribute to the games. They did these games. They did those two, and they also did Dragon World, which was Price's own product. Those were kind of the first three they did. They're really uneven as products. They never really succeeded in bridging the gap between games and literature, because the thing is, with the limitations of memory and and the amount of characters you can have, characters in this case being letters, numbers, not like personalities, the limit of the number of characters you can have, the amount of content you can have, meant that you couldn't really tell a compelling narrative through interactive fiction. I mean, even Infocom, which called their products interactive fiction, no one would say that their narratives were complex and inspiring in the same way that a short story or a novel are. I mean, it really comes down to putting a little bit of narrative trapping on top of gameplay. The gameplay just wasn't there on these games. I mean, Rendezvous at Rama kind of tried to mimic the book it was based on, but only with very mixed success. They had pictures as well. They had graphics. It wasn't just text, but the pictures were pretty primitive. Fahrenheit 451, they actually treated as a sequel to the book rather than adapting the book. It was a little interesting. It moved beyond your traditional adventure game puzzles. You actually had to gather information. A lot of it involved searching and finding quotations from literature that you could use as passwords to get in with various members of the underground resistance. There were some interesting ideas there that you weren't just gathering items, that you were actually engaging with this literary material. It's kind of interesting. But the parser on these games was absolutely terrible. And so you ended up playing Guess the Parser way more than you needed to. I think some of them did halfway decently for them, but none of them were breakout hits. They also collaborated with Michael Crichton on a game called Amazon, which was kind of similar to his story Congo, but kind of in a different setting in South America instead. Then they kind of shoehorned in a couple of others. They actually had a really primitive RPG called Shadowkeep that was actually created by another company and and shopped to them, a company called Ultravision. It was not based on a book, but they wanted to publish it because Ultravision brought it to them. And so they did the reverse. They had ghostwriter Alan Dean Foster create a story to go along with the game. It was basically wizardry, except take wizardry and replace all of the rational commands with having to type all your commands in a parser like an adventure game. That wasn't great. (laughs) I was looking at a few of the pictures in some of these softwares here. The graphics are really, really bad. They're not really taking advantage of all the colors that you can do, even CGA level. You got one, two color backgrounds going on. Mm -hmm. Then you have 
about half to three quarters of the screen of text. Yeah, and, you know, the parser was pretty bad. They couldn't, because of the limitations of the medium, really create complex stories. So they're really not that great in entries into the text adventure canon. They did a couple of others. They did a Nine Princes of Amber game based on Roger Zelazny's work, another notable author and notable fantasy series. They did some stuff, but it was a mixed success. It was kind of a noble idea and an interesting effort, but really more of a footnote in history. The children's ones were a little bit different, the Wyndham Classics. Some of those were text adventures as well, but they also did some more interactive ones. Dale DeSharoon, who we mentioned before, did a couple of these. A lot of what they did was stuff in the public domain. So they did Alice in Wonderland, Swiss Family Robinson, Wizard of Oz, because all of those books were in the public domain. They didn't have to get rights for them. Maybe the most interesting one they did was actually one where they did have to get the rights, which is a game called a uh, children's series called Below the Root. Dishroon did that. Below the Root was based on uh, a series of novels by an author named uh, Zilpha Keatley-Snyder. Dale and Zilpha actually did work together on this. It was actually a bit of a collaboration between them. Disharoon's games, a couple of them were text adventures, kind of like the Talarin ones, but Disharoon's games were actually a little more moving towards the graphical adventure games, getting closer to what, say, Lucasfilm ended up doing with Scum. Now, it wasn't all the way there. This wasn't Scum before Scum. Basically, you ran around the world exploring, and you actually had an animated character that you moved around. They could move, they could jump, they could do all of this. But when you interacted with people or objects, it would actually bring up a menu of commands. So instead of using a parser, you'd have commands like take, speak, drop, examine, that you would select from, just like you would in a scum game. Again, it wasn't nearly the same as a scum game, but still it was moving away from the parser, which is actually kind of interesting when you think about it. And Below the Root is actually a somewhat beloved adventure game for people of a certain age that were the right age to experience it. I mean, today it's nothing really to write home about. You know, it's certainly not as pretty looking even as as a King's Quest. I'm looking at it now. I can understand where you're coming from it from the graphical standpoint in the context of the era compared to what I just saw as far as Fahrenheit 451 goes, this is way, way better and more playable than anything else I have actually seen. Exactly. And it it did some interesting world building and lore building. You kind of had to avoid violence because that was something in the books themselves. Plus, this is geared to children. And so it's geared towards kind of alternative methods of problem solving. You could die in the game, but it wasn't nearly as unforgiving in that regard as a Sierra Adventure game was. Well, I should say you could get hurt, but you couldn't actually die. You would just be penalized for a little bit if you got hurt. So, you know, it was a little more forgiving than something that Sierra was doing. You could actually play as one of several different characters, and reactions of NPCs in the world would actually change based on which character you were. I mean, you know, it had some sophistication for a game of its type. It's still fairly primitive, but it's kind of interesting in those kind of ways. It is certainly something that you can see the evolution of text adventures moving towards something like King's Quest. You know, this came out in 1984, the same year as King's Quest. But, you know, King's Quest still had a parser. The thing that's interesting about Below the Root and a couple of the other games Disharoon did is that they replaced the parser with commands like take and drop and examine, similar to Scum. You know, King's Quest didn't do that. King's Quest was fully animated, but you still did things using a parser. So I guess the proper way of doing it would say... They're attacking the path to scum, as you say, 
the Lucas Arts approach, mm-hmm. and they're doing it from a different angle than King's Quest did in Sierra. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, it's an interesting product. And this is kind of the high watermark of Spinnaker, kind of 84, 85. They've got the big advertising going. They've got the mass market distribution. They've diversified. They do a couple of arcade-like action games as well. They've diversified into six or seven lines. And then they run full tilt into the crash of that home computer market. There was a lot of overordering of product. Everyone was getting excited. And then the bottom kind of fell out of the market due to a variety of factors, including that ruinous price war. You know, Spinnaker was fine. They came out of it fine, but they definitely came out of it chastened and they definitely came out of it having to refocus. So by the late 1980s, they kind of start changing directions. They back off on the games. The Talarium line falls away pretty quickly. I think 1986 is the last time they release anything in the Talarium line. They back off, uh, of course, the arcade games. And they even back off of education, because in this period, Davidson and Associates, which we also talked about in our 100,000 episode, is, is really on the rise. Davidson was involved in more traditional educational software. They were involved in the rote learning, flashcard wielding, drill instruction, old school educational learning. This appealed to parents. According to the people at Spinnaker, you know, in the market research they did, it didn't appeal to kids. But, you know, the kids aren't buying the educational software. The parents are buying the educational software. Parents being a little less familiar with computers, you know, used to the way things were done when they were in school. They were more comfortable with this traditional drill-based approach than they were with Spinnaker's We're doing these game-like things. We're doing these computer-animated visual things that also happen to be teaching a lesson at the same time. Not happen to be, because that's the whole point, but I'm just saying it makes it look like the learning is almost accidental or incidental within these wider activities. It's very stealth education. You're not being beaten over the head with, and we are now doing one plus seven. Solve one plus seven, or else the monkey will fall. Into the pit of balls. You do not want a monkey to fall into the pit of balls. That would be terrible. So parents were more comfortable with that. So this has appeared when Davidson and Associates was really taking over the education market. Spinnaker was being squeezed out. It was still a challenging market, the home computer market, because there'd been a lack of standardization. That's part of what led to the crash as well, is just so many platforms proliferating and nobody quite sure what they should be investing in as users. You don't want to be stuck on Betamax when everyone else is on VHS. You know, in the VCR wars, at least, it was simple because it was basically just VHS or Beta. But in the home computer wars, you have Radio Shack, which has both their TRS-80 line and their color computer line. You have Commodore, which has both their Commodore 64 and their VIC-20. You have Texas Instruments with the TI-99. You have Timex Sinclair 1000. You have Atari, whose 8-bit line has about five different variations in it. You have Apple with the Apple II, no, the Apple III, no, the Macintosh, no, the Apple II GS. I mean, it's such a fragmented market that it turns out that it's kind of hard to get mass market penetration when nobody knows what's going to win. I mean, the Commodore 64 did get some mass market penetration, but that really inhibited mass market growth, especially after the price war came along and ruined everybody. So it was a hard road to hoe, and Spinnaker kind of had to reassess at this point. They had to get a little more funding. They almost merged with Sierra. I think we talked about that in our Sierra episode. But remember, TA Associates 
was a backer of both of them. And as we talked about in our Sierra episode, Sierra got really brutally killed in the combination of the video game industry crash and home computer crash because they had invested heavily in the cartridge market on both ends of that, both on the uh, console side and on the home computer side, and got burned by it. And they were near bankruptcy before King's Quest. To kind of salvage the situation, TA Associates wanted to merge Spinnaker and Sierra into one company that could kind of weather all of this. TA did not have a majority on Sierra's board. The Williamses did have to agree to do this in order for it to happen. Ken was ready to do it and walk away, but Roberta Williams refused. Because she refused, they didn't have the the votes on the board to be able to do it, and it didn't happen. But they had to get another round of funding. Bill Bowman actually leaves in this period. He leaves the company in 1987. He and David Cease had really been running the company together. They were essentially co-CEOs. And that didn't make sense anymore from TA's perspective, from a decision-making standpoint and from a cost structure standpoint. They decided they were only going to do one of them, and they decided that David was their horse, and so Bill left the company. David C. stayed with it to run it. With the coming of the IBM PC clones, the the PC-compatible market, they did kind of a hard uh, left turn into business and productivity software, because now we're talking the 1987 1988, 1989 period, with the proliferation of the clone market, companies like Dell and Compaq and Packard Bell and all of these guys creating competing clones of the IBM PC, the price of PCs really came down. And because that price really came down, people were starting to buy them to have in the home to be able to take their work home with them. Now you start getting that lack of differentiation between a home market and a business market, and you start getting that segmentation of the market based on what kind of product line you put out instead of what kind of market you're serving. Spinnaker really refocuses on business and productivity for the PC-compatible market and gets mostly out of these other areas. It doesn't completely abandon education. It doesn't even completely abandon games. They end up getting the rights to the Sargon series of chess games, which uh, before Chess Master was kind of the leading chess series. Haydn had been publishing them before that, but they got the rights to those. They still do a few games. They do a little education, but not a huge amount of education. They do, in the early 90s, try to do CDI and put out a couple of educational entertainment products on Philips CDI. None of those products are memorable at all, but there is an interesting memorable connection there because when they decided to back the CDI, they actually brought Dale DeSharoon in-house to kind of lead the charge on those CDI products. DeSharoon parlayed the knowledge that he got working on the uh, CDI products into a job with Philips Interactive Media itself, Philips being the Dutch conglomerate that created the CDI. In that capacity, he created a couple of games that some of our listeners might have heard of, or led the creation of a couple of games our listeners might have heard of, called Link the Faces of Evil and Zelda the Wand of Gamelon. We may have remembered those games. They may have been in certain awful books. They may have been reviled by the general fandom. They may have been disowned. Yes. Now, we won't go into those games here because they are off scope, because they are not Spinnaker games. It's just that the whole reason that Disharoon ended up doing those games is because he did CDI software for Spinnaker. 
you know, he'd done adventure games before. In some ways, these games were an extension of what he did on Below the Root, which we talked about. Going around, running, jumping, gathering items, all of that stuff. It's just that in the context of the CDI, there were issues. That's kind of where the in-depth look at the Spinnaker story ends for us, because they mostly get out of games at that point. But we will very briefly summarize kind of what happened to the company after that. I'm presuming kaboom. Not exactly. They have a little bit of success in this area. Business software. Home business, home productivity software. One of the interesting things that they do is a program called Window Works, which is basically Microsoft Works before Microsoft Works. They got in on working with the Windows platform, starting with Windows 2.0, so before it became super popular. That was Microsoft's office for non-business people. It basically was a heavily, heavily neutered version of Word, Access, and Excel kind of stuck together. That's what Microsoft Works was. Windows Works predated that and was kind of the same thing. And they made a deal with Compaq because they were getting into this PC-compatible market. It was bundled with Compaq computers. So they had a pretty big success with Window Works. Then in 1990, they bought Springboard, which we may recall from a 100,000 episode, was the creator of some desktop publishing software like the Newsroom that was highly successful. They worked with that. They actually went public in 1991 successfully on the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. They're actually gearing themselves up to actually be truly successful here. They are. They've pivoted into this business and productivity software actually in an intelligent way. I mean, this wasn't, you know, this was well thought out. They had already been doing a little bit of this during their period of diversification in 84-85. It's just that by 87, they realize this is really the way they've got to go forward. They take advantage of that PC-compatible market to establish themselves fairly well. At this point, you know, this is the period of time when companies are devouring companies. And so at this point, they're the acquirer. But then in the end, they end up getting acquired. You know, it's it's kind of rocky. David Cease is not really all that thrilled about running a public company. It's not the kind of work that he's really interested in. The market's getting more and more hyper competitive. They're starting to play in the pool with the big boys now. They end up getting bought out by a Canadian company by the name of SoftKey. SoftKey basically had a monopoly on the Canadian tax software market. They had the program that basically had a 98% market share on tax software in the Canadian market. So they had a lot of money to throw around. They decided they wanted to expand south of the border, expand into the United States. So they started gobbling up companies. So they bought Spinnaker because it had such a great home productivity line. Then they bought the Learning Company, which had lots of educational software. Then they changed their name to the Learning Company. And so this is the company, we talked about this in our Broderbund episode. This is then the company that buys Broderbund and then lays everybody off across all of their acquisitions to make it look like they're making boatloads of money because they have so much profit, but they really don't have that profit. They just eliminated all their overhead, so it's all an illusion. They trick Mattel into buying the whole bundle for Mattel Interactive. We talked about this even in our 100,000 episode. The CEO of Mattel ends up losing her job because it's a disaster, and they sell the whole thing for $1. Now, the Spinnaker people aren't involved in that. Cease leaves once the sale's done. They're not involved in all of that flim-flam stuff later. 
Spinnaker ceases to exist as an independent company in 1994 when Softkey buys it as the first step to their expansion that leads to that disastrous learning company situation just a few years later. An ignoble end. They left on their own terms. I mean, they were a successful company that decided that it, it really wasn't worth staying in the fight anymore, and so they sold out and went on and did other things. So I wouldn't call it an ignoble end for Spinnaker. I would just say that, you know, it's a company that grew to a certain size in the market, and at that point, they were kind of a mid-level company, and they either had to be an acquirer to get bigger or be acquired, and they chose to be acquired. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, the the product line was still, as far as I know, successful when they sold out. It's just that it, you know, fell apart later. Once they were bought out, the people who were the principal ones who made it decided to go, you know, I'm done. We're leaving. Exactly. So that's that. You know, it's it's an interesting story. It it kind of shows, you know, another side that we've talked about of the industry at that time. They're, they were part of the maturing of the industry out of that cottage industry phase into the professional phase. They were doing for education and productivity software the same thing that Electronic Arts was doing for games. They did flirt with games briefly with their Tellarium and Wyndham Classics line and their couple of other action-y games. But at the end of the day, with the home computer crash, they went for the safe bet of the productivity market and latched onto that IBM PC market, which at that time was not a game market yet. The PC market doesn't really become a game market until the early 90s. They just went into something else as a result of kind of the shock of that home computer crash. That's kind of it in terms of how they fit into our uh, mission of telling the history of of this crazy uh, computer game industry. Well, we do get to loop around and learn a little bit about how that offhanded comment about Spinnaker when there was this massive buying spree and leading to Mattel and everything else. That offhanded comment now has a story. Paul Harvey always used to say, and now you know the rest of the story. Well, we're going to need another story, Alex. We always do, don't we? We do. I think now that we've been tiptoeing around computer games a little bit in this episode, it's it's time to get fully into computer games again and uh, talk about one of the uh, interesting early pioneers in the business, California Pacific. We've danced around California Pacific some. Uh, we talked about them in our early computer market episodes a little bit. But since that time, I've had the, the great pleasure of interviewing the founder of California Pacific, who hadn't really ever been interviewed before, Alvin Rimmers, and got a lot of the inside scoop on just what was up with California Pacific. Again, they're an interesting company because they grew really big. They were one of the most prominent computer game companies at the beginning of the 1980s. They nurtured such great talents as Bill Budge and Richard Garriott. Then, because the industry kind of changed overnight, they fell apart very quickly. Al Remmers was kind of candid about that whole process, how that that whole thing worked. And it's a company that hasn't gotten nearly the attention uh, that it deserves from any historical source, including us. This seems like a good as, as good a time as any to uh, delve into that. We're going to go off to the Pacific, maybe off to Pacific Rim. Who knows? Next time <laughs> on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's Video Game History blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. 
Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.